Welcome to the August episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. We're going to start with a song by this month's guest, Gary Hammond. Here's Are You For Me? Thank you. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the August episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. My name is Josh. And my name is Max. Today we are here with tenor saxophonist and Seattle jazz legend himself, Gary Hammond. Thank you for being here, Gary. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are super excited to talk to you about a bunch of different things. Um, But can we just start off with a little background? So you grew up here in Seattle. Yes, I grew up in Seattle. So you you attended Garfield High School and everything, is that correct? I did. Um, First of all, let me make that very clear. Garfield was always known for having a great band. Indeed. Even when we went to other schools, they knew that that we were competing with in, in sports. They knew that when the music started, they would get up and want to dance. That's how great the the bands were. Um, And I need to be one of the outspoken people to let people know that the whole situation with this band and with Garfield Music program was always in place. You had Quincy Jones, you had Bumps Blackwell, you had all these great musicians, George Griffin, um, Dave Lewis, you know, and and they all were 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 pretty magical. Not to mention Ron Buford and Benoris Blackman, Tommy Tommy Henderson, the great Lawrence Wilson, who grew up right across the street. That was that that's no longer who's deceased now. That was with H. P. Barnum, Ike and Tina Turner. James Brown. So this myth about Garfield being one-sided, it has to be stopped and reckoned with. And believe me, I give total respect to Mr. A. Cox and those that have came and accomplished things, but it was already in place. Was that what got you into playing saxophone in the first place? That's or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just kind of seeing that in the community? Seeing it in the community. I actually, and a gentleman that no one ever calls, that was a child prodigy, that was under me, that actually went and played with Ray Charles when he wasn't even 12 years old. That guy's name was Leonard Rhodes. What an amazing saxophone player. They called him Doc Rhodes. He's deceased. Um... He was the big inspiration for the younger musicians like myself. And what an inspiration. Doc Rhodes. Okay. Very cool. I haven't heard of him, so that's that's pretty cool. Oh, well, you're hearing of him now because he was the one. He was the one. He just didn't leave Seattle, um, and there's not enough talk about him. Never took a lesson in his life, could play any instrument you put in front of him. Wow. So when you went to Garfield, I mean, nowadays, for a lot of younger people, when they hear about you know the jazz programs around Seattle, they think of kind of jazz education as being like jazz band class or something, you know. What did that look like back then? Was Was there a jazz band class or was it just kind of like music was just a thing that happened in general, outside of school, inside of school? Like, well, what music that like? happened inside and outside of school. There wasn't a general jazz class, but 
people like um, the band director, it'll come to me in a minute, Waldo King mm-hmm. and, and uh, Louis Pucci, they were about the music. So anytime you entered a class with them, which I never had classes with them, but it was open doors because you'd hear the music. They'd always bring these great uh, records to school. It was records back then, and you'd know about them. And then they'd bring people, great people to, to Garfield, like Duke Ellington, like Count Basie, like the Adderley Brothers. We saw all that. We got to see that. Um, and, you know, just to name a few others that they brought, because that was important. Because back then, you, we, it was a, it was, how could I say this and be pretty right, right on? Back then, there was a little bit of a divide because you still had things like you had to deal with, which we all loved, the Nutcracker and classical music. And classical music was actually being pushed a little more than jazz music. But with the incredible leadership of them, they were into all of it. They were great band directors. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard of those people. They were before my time, but they're definitely legendary in Seattle. What were you saying, Josh? Yeah, I was uh, curious, um, going back to you picking the saxophones, we heard a little bit about how you got into music, being a, there being a great music program at Garfield. But what attracted you to the saxophone in particular as opposed to a different instrument? Well, I, I played sports before that. And uh, I grew up in a household where there was always music. The, the person that brought jazz to Seattle and put it on the map was um, Bob Summarize. Whoa. His jazz program started being aired in the 60s because before that, we heard what everybody else heard. Sugar Shack, the Beatles, and that was it. When Bob Summarize came to town, and lo and behold, why did it have to happen that he moved in my neighborhood down the hill off of Charles Street on Norman from me on 28th Avenue South? That was a great block. So my parents would have these parties and he would come and bring the records. The parties were also social because during that time, African-Americans were only granted so so much leadway in the community as to buying homes and purchasing things. So you'd have Reverend McKinney, you'd have Sam Smith, Councilman Sam Smith, you'd have all these people at my house and you'd have all this great music going on. So when I was a kid, I heard Gene Ammons, Sonny Stitt, who I really fell in love with, but was very shy about it. But my brother played drums. And, hmm. you know, that helped too because there was always something going on. And at the time, being a little kid running around the neighborhood, I mean, Jimmy's, 
Jimi Hendrix was coming over, rehearsing with him and a guy named uh, Terry Johnson. That was his first band. And Terry went into the military. And then he ended up getting Sonny Rollins' nephew to play organ in the band. Now, one of the things that's funny to me is how Jimmy was so disliked for what he was doing. Now, I didn't know Jimmy, and I didn't have a connection. I remember seeing him come to the house, but I never really paid that much attention to him. Even after he became famous, I was always knew exactly what I wanted to hear and what I liked. I went through my whole, I could say my whole teenage life loving an art form and pretending to like Motown and some of these other things. But if I had to make a choice, it was the music over that. So it was always there in me. I just had to, to, to find out how to bring it out of me. So when I started bringing out of When I started bringing it out of me, at first I was laughed at. But then I met people like George Rui, Jay Thomas, and all of them that were kind. They would show me things and talk to me and tell me, let me know that I, I was not too old to play. And that encouragement led to me continuing on. And I'm not downing the community that I, that I grew up in because those guys were very advanced. I mean, nobody's ever heard of Tommy Henderson. Tommy Henderson happened to be one of the greatest drummers that came out of Seattle. He passed away as well. But he also became a great piano player to do pop recordings. So nobody ever heard him. They never talk about Larry Coriel. Larry Coriel came out of this area, played with the Viceroys and played with groups that I played in and that Jay played in. We all played together. So there's a lot of missing links to these stories and there were a lot of great people that came out out of these areas that were doing wonderful things, you know. So there's there's a guy named Joe Brazil and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked and studied with him. Is that correct? Is that right? Uh, Joe Brazil was my mentor. He he mentored a lot of uh, a lot of us. But the person who really taught me to play was a guy named Boss George. He had one eye, so we used to call him One Eye George. Hmm. I got George together with Jimmy Smith. Oh wow. Jimmy Smith's guitar player got sick, and here I am, 16 or 17 years old with the great Jimmy Smith, and I said, I know a guitar player that could play with you, and he kind of gave me this dead look, and I said, his name is One-Eyed George, and he just kind of looked at me, what would this kid know about, and he didn't say anything, and I, I told him where he lived. He got him. Wow. He went and got him. <laughs> he found out where he lived downtown and got him. And when I came up to the checkmate, they were rehearsing. Wow. And he didn't say anything to me about it. You know, he just had him. That's all. And then when he performed, he was sold. 
In fact, Jimmy came back looking for him. He liked him so much. Now, there was a man. He came here from the south somewhere, and he taught me how to play. I I went out on my first professional gig. I had to be uh, 17. I wasn't old enough to be in the club, but he'd tell me. He'd hum things to me on, and and then he'd hum my solos and encourage me to do it. So he was a real influence. And the other two guys, like I said, I give credit to Jordan Rui and to Jay Thomas because they both were very, 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 very involved in, in helping. You know, they, 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 they kept the, the inspiration up. That's really cool to hear. I know Jay, but I don't know Jordan. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. So you also went to New England Conservatory. Is that right? I went to New England Conservatory. I won the scholarship. Wow. And that scholarship was the beginning of the Jazz Studies Program, the African-American program. At the time, when I went there between the late 60s, early 70s, it was not a curriculum established. So through the guidance of Jackie McLean, which I don't like to hear the things that I hear that people say about Jackie McLean, the younger musicians, I'm going to clean it up now. Jackie McLean is one of the reasons why things are going into the universities and into the music schools. He was a forefronter. Uh, Kenny Durham was one. And, you know, many others. So this took a village. It was not a play toy. At NEC, it was considered as, an, as a non-legitimate art form. Whoa. Now, having said that, we could still come there and study. But we studied classical music. We studied jazz late at night. We studied, studied actually in the evenings. And we were, we were near the trash rooms and down where it smelled, down in the basement. Wow. But <laughs> so crazy. when we finally broke ground, Arthur Fiedler was there. Isaac Stern was there the night we made jazz an elective where the people that people are always um, aspiring to could get a degree in jazz. But before that, from the 60s, late 60s to early 70s, you studied classical music. Hmm. Wow. So were you studying classical saxophone then? I was studying classical music. Hmm. And I had to learn to play some legit things. I was not an accomplished um, musician by no means. I could not play classical music. I had to learn. You know, I could barely read, but I had Joe Allard, the same person that Dave Liebman had, Steve Grossman had, Mike Brecker had, Bob Benser. All of us had Joe Allard. That's the other thing. And Joe was one of the, between Joe Viola, Andy McGee, and Joe Allard, they were probably the most amazing teachers out there. 
So I'm curious, you had mentioned that back then at NEC, because uh, your cohort started off um, one, the earliest students for jazz education at NEC, right? And that there wasn't a, um, an official curriculum yet. No. What, what were you studying then? What, we studied what classical music. I see. But what about at night when you were playing uh, jazz? We, we, How did we, that played, work? we played we played charts. We studied. We had to come down where Jack, Jackie Byard and 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 as I said before, KD and you know, and Jackie McLean, Lee Morgan, all them cats would come up to the school hmm. as artists and residents. See, the, the school was was progressing because they had Gunther Schuler and Bob D. Dominica as the administrators and the leaders of the school. So with those guys, new ideas came around. They had Arnett Coleman there. They had, who actually studied there. They, they, they had the likes of Cecil Taylor, but they all couldn't get a jazz degree. Hmm. But they all played with, um, with, with Gunther because Gunther was a very exploratory person. So was there was there a connection? I know nowadays, I mean, I went to Berkeley in Boston, right, by NEC. Was there a connection between those two schools back then? Absolutely. All the teachers that taught jazz came from Berkeley. Interesting. Berkeley is the first form of the art form. Now, um, afterwards... After, after it started getting out, they started doing artists and residents, bringing people like Junior Cook, bringing Joe Henderson, bringing all these guys, uh, uh, Jerry Mulligan. I mean, we had everybody, you know, but they had, but they had still not, at least at NEC, established a curriculum. Hmm. Berkeley had more of a lineup than we had because they had been the long-existing school for 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 the arts and anybody that's studying jazz anywhere i don't care what they say they're studying their curriculum but even back then i don't correct me if i'm wrong i don't think berkeley had a formal degree necessarily i mean they might have had a curriculum of sorts but i don't i don't think it was like a no. accredited college or university. no it was not an accredited college yeah. that came later mm -hmm. i can't tell you about that but it did come yeah. But it happened before NEC hmm. because people were going. Interesting. You know, they, were, they were actually going and uh, they were getting their degrees. Did you get to hang out with Mary Lou Williams or, and Carmen McRae? Mary Lou Williams, I had classes with. Wow. That's cool. And uh, she was completely business. I believe it. She told me a lot of stories. But when she came in, when she stepped in that 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 classroom, the the, the kindness and the niceness was over. She <laughs> was serious business. Same with Carmen McRae. I can believe that too. <laughs> and she doesn't get enough credit. I agree. One of the things that people don't realize is that her, Mary Lou Williams, uh, a woman up here named Melanie Jones. Um, Patty Bowen, mm. they were all writing lead sheets for Miles and all of them. They could write before, write better than they wrote. 
uh, uh, male ballistin, but because they were female, it was bad luck. See? Yeah. So, so this whole thing that people don't know, they would tell me stuff. So I have great respect for them because they were more than anybody can, can imagine. And if you go and look at one of Monk's footage on Monk's, you'll see who he's with. When you look at the, the great day in Harlem, you see who he's next to. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. And, and, and guys overlook that. I don't want to see the same mistakes that are happening, and I find that with 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 uh, males and, and females pushing up on each other. Yeah, you know I'm, that's not the music. Yep. I'm hoping they're starting to get a little more credit these days. Um, I think people, at least when I was. Uh, in, in jazz programs around Seattle, we were learning about Mary Lou Williams and people like that. So hopefully that's changing a little bit. Child prodigy. Yeah. And I met so many of them in Boston that were women that could play. I mean, mm -hmm. Janet, I can't even think of Janet's last name. Hell of a pianist. Played flugelhorn. Great. But one of the things that humbled me is because I, I was always able to play with them and they were always able to get me in bands and, and, and my ego never got in the way. So I'd always do well with them. And I, cause I was always learning something from them. Yeah. So, well, speaking of playing in Boston, this is a slightly unrelated, but Wally's jazz club, you, I think know the, the founders, right? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. I played with, I played in Wally's jazz club. Bob Nellums brought me in there. Bob Nellums was interviewed before he died on Fresh Air. Now, this goes to show you how much I knew about Bob Nellums. <laughs> Bob Nellums played on all the, the Motown records. Fingertips, Pride and Joy. Mm -hmm. He was the guy. I never knew that. I knew he was kind of crazy because <laughs> when we played Wally's, I remember he hired me, and then we were playing. He'd have on earphones, and he would be listening to Herbie and different guys. You know, that's when you had the walkie-talkies and yeah, the cassette yeah. players. And I'd turn around, and I'd be like, how can he play with me? And then, listen, he'd be laughing all the time. And so one day <laughs> I said, and he never missed anything. All I'd say was what I wanted to play, and he'd be right there. So one day I said to him, man, what are you listening to? He said, you really want to know? And he's laughing, you know. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And then he puts the earphones on me and it's Herbie playing something. And I just, I was just baffled. How could he do that? That's how good he was. Wow. And he went on to be with Charles Mingus. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, I got to play at Wally's every week for a few years, but it was significantly later, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's still, you know, still well, I mean, there's there's been a misquote in in bless her heart, I like her, but Terry Lynn Carrington used to come in because her father would bring her in, and she wasn't even thirteen, and wow. she'd come in, and I'd let her set in. Now to take 
Wally's and to put put it out there the way she did when the interviews came was was a misconception of all the great people that came before her. Because you have to remember Sam Rivers was in there. You have to remember Tony Williams was in there. All these guys came out of Wally's. And for her to put her and Greg Osby, that's, and just that, I understand, but you got to do it right, you know. But mm -hmm. then I take it further. The people, when you want interviews, you go and you find out as much as you want about it. Um, switching directions just slightly, um, what made you eventually come back to Seattle? Well, my parents weren't well. Hmm. And um, I came back. And, and it, was, it wasn't a, a willing process. It was because my uncle, my mother's brother, actually got a hold of me. And they were in bad shape. Hmm. So somebody had to be here with them. So I was here with them. And they lived to be 90 and 92 because wow. I came back. So I got to spend time, having not seen them for years, I got to spend some time with them. Well, that's, that's cool, yeah. at least. Had the scene changed much when you came back? Changed a lot. It changed rapidly. And uh, it's not the Seattle that I grew up and learned to love. Seattle used to be a place where it was so clean, there were no potholes, you could eat off the street. There were none of these trees out in front of, uh, we had nothing but wide open space and big families. And we played football. We played baseball. We put a basketball hoop up on the corner. We did all that. And there were fruit trees everywhere, all kind of fruit. Wow. What about the music? How, how had that changed when you came back, or the players? Uh, the, the music changed because the clubs that diminished from Jackson Street to Yesler to Union to Madison were clubs. If you go up on Madison here, and there's a shell station up at the top, mm -hmm. that used to be the Blue Post Tavern. I played there with Dave Lewis. Wow. Yeah. And for those, that is Devon's father, correct? Uh, Devon's grandfather. Grand grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think happened to a lot of those clubs? Well, a lot of them got pushed out. And when Seattle took a flip-flop, and I wasn't here when all that happened. Mm. But I was here when, when, when it was ripe, when you had George Griffin, you had Dave Lewis, you had all these great musicians that all came and laid down a foundation and left. George Griffin, when Hugh Hefner started Playboy Club, George Griffin was the musician out of Seattle Whoa. that played in that palace of his. <laughs> now, how many people know that? <laughs> I think two more now. <laughs> two more now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, 
the person that you hear with Bill Withers is a guitar player, Benoris Blackman. He was also with Watts 103rd, Rhythm uh, and, and he played with LTD, and he played with a lot of other groups. But every time you hear doom dum doom dum ba da ba da that guy was from here. Hmm. He could also play jazz. He's a great player. Played with Ron Buford. They were around here. Wow. Yeah, this is there are so many cool details that we're learning today. This oh yeah, awesome. and then there was a guy, organist, two organists. One was Gordon DeWitty. They were both blind, and the other one was Mike Mando. Hmm. Phenomenal. There's another person I'd like to bring up really quick, and that's big John Patton. You played with him? Is that I right? played with John Patton. I played with him. I played with Johnny Hammond Smith. Uh, I played with Jimmy Smith. I played with Don Patterson. Wow. <laughs> this is a lot of people we're getting through. This is crazy. Thank you for sharing all this stuff, by the way. Oh yeah. Well, when you bring it up, you know, I, I'm. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, I did do that. John, with John, I learned a lot. John and I became like brothers. John is probably. Grant once said to me, "It's funny." I was talking to Grant, and I said, well, who do you like? Because um, he, you know, between Larry and Larry Young and John, and, and I thought he was going to say Larry. He said, I like John. Hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, Larry Young. And then I understood. John had his own concept on the blues. Personality by Lloyd Price's John wrote that tune. Because you've got personality. John Patton mm -hmm. wrote that. John Pat no Pat Patton was probably one of the most variety players you ever met. And it's in the history books about he's, he's, he had a system on the blues like Thelonious Monk. Yes. I only got to know him because uh, Mike Eskenazi was telling me about him a while ago. Oh, yeah. And that's probably because of you as well. Oh, yeah. I... I didn't, during the time when I was with them, I didn't realize how much I learned from them. Because I was too busy being young and cocky. You know, but I actually learned. So when you were on the road with, with a band like that, what did that look like back then? Like, what was an average day kind of structured <laughs> It like? was scary. <laughs> uh, that's funny you asked me. It was scary because I always thought that when something would go wrong... I was the person that was doing it wrong because oh. I was the weakest one in the band. Hmm. But they, they, they heard the potential and they chose me. You know, and believe me, every night I was afraid. But every night the music was different. Just when we think that we got, I thought that it was going to be at the highest level, it would go higher. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. It's quite an honor, too. Oh, it was. It was quite an honor. And and they would do things like you would rehearse five or six tunes. I remember when, when I first started rehearsing with John, 
I, I, um, it was a weekend, good thing for that. I was married and I left home. And I left home at 12 o'clock that afternoon. I didn't come home until 2.30 that morning. <laughs> and my wife was so hot because <laughs> she, she didn't know where I was. And she didn't want to believe that I was there at that rehearsal. So I, she made me give John's number and she talked to John's wife. And John said, no, he was here. They were rehearsing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you did. They would rehearse, and then you would learn. Then you'd get to the gig, and they call some tune you don't even know. But because of what they taught you, you could play the tune. You'd be able to play it. And Gracia Moncourt was in the band during that time. Uh, Jimmy Ponder, on mm. and off, and Eddie Gladden, or either another guy, Eddie Crawford, or Rudy Walker. And Bruce Edwards would play guitar when 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 uh, Ponder wasn't playing, you know. Wow. And Melvin Sparks. Those were the three guitar players. Nowadays, if you go to learn music in a school or a college, one of the primary ways that you kind of often discover music in a lot of situations is through like something like the real book or something, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but was not really a thing when you were in college. The real book came out. Uh, if I'm mistaken, around the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to know the guy's name, Charles. He was one of the guys, because he was trying to get me to sell him. Because <laughs> he had gotten so... No, he started making so much money at it. Uh -huh. He had bought a van, and he just wanted me to ride around with him and, and deliver him. And I said, no. I mean, I, he... Had a so I think at the beginning it was kind of something that 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 would work because there was more truth than there is now. After anything gets exposed, you have to remember if you don't keep the quality, you're not gonna you're not gonna have the same product. You know, and if you just want the success, mm -hmm. then be happy that that's what you're doing. Don't complain when somebody spots things in it that's not right. That's all. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times a real book chart has been pulled out and you have to go through it and correct a bunch of different little things. And But so when you guys would discover new songs that you wanted to learn, would that just be from people bringing in records? Yeah, it would be say, from hey, check this out and getting wrecked from, from the records. And back then you had dynamite ears. Mm -hmm. I'm just now going back to that. Mm -hmm. I've just started to do that now. And, and, and I feel free. I will not allow anybody. So if you get to play with me again, no more charts. We're we going to rehearse. I think that's the best way to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And that way, Everybody really has to learn the music. 
Mm-hmm. When Tommy Turrentine was in the band, he would write like Quincy would, and he would write the music out, and I'd, I'd play it, and then he'd snatch it, tear it up sometimes <laughs> in my face and say, now you need to learn this. Mm-hmm. You know, because you ain't going to play it on a bandstand looking at it. And, uh, and, and I just... And I used to get real nervous sometimes when they do that because I'd be like, well, I might not be able to pull out. <laughs> but then I, it would give me, I always had something to do. So if everybody else was asleep, I'd be shed because I'm going to make sure I play them parts right, you know. Yeah, the best, the, yeah, the best musicians that I've had the privilege of playing with, I think, have never, ever relied upon written music. No, it's it, it's... And I think that that's a that's something that has to bring be brought back and brought to the institution because it's gotten way 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 too too colleged and intellectual and not enough about spiritual, mm-hmm. you know. And they can agree with me to disagree. No, when I came through this music, you learned to play. And you used all your senses. You know, there was no convenience stores around. I couldn't just go around the corner <laughs> and, and push a, com- a button and there it is. You yeah. Know. No, I'll re- I reel book on your phone. <laughs> yes. I, I, that's yeah, that's a real phone. disservice. Mm-hmm. You know, only time that they would do that is when they were in a big band setting. And then after they got to know the music in the big bands, um, they weren't reading that music anymore. They knew it. Yeah. I mean, Jerome Richardson told me that one day. He said, man, we know that music now. That's just on the stand. A lot of times he said, if you look closer, them books are closed. <laughs> we haven't played it so much. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're getting a little bit short on time here, but just a couple more things I wanted to touch on. Um, you have a nickname. Is that correct? Jubil? Jubil. Jubil? Jubil came from a woman that used to come hear me at Sweet Basil's. Oh. I like that woman, but of course it didn't work out that way. She had a boyfriend. so. <laughs> but she always called me Jubil, man. Jubil's from the Bible. Oh, yeah. But everybody that spells it, spells it wrong. I'm, it's not an I, it's a U, Jubal. Huh. And and even though it's on my website, I, I have to correct them all the time. No, I'm, I'm two U's. Interesting. Interesting. I said, it, 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 he, was, he was the creator and the founder of all music. He couldn't read. Didn't read any music, and that's why she nicknamed me that. Because oh. when when I met her, I couldn't read music really, but I'm playing with people like John Hicks and all of them down there, and all these heavyweights, and she's like, "Wow, you know." And she just she was fascinated that I'd be able to get it. I could do a little bit, but I wasn't fast. Now, after learning to do that, I don't do it at all anymore. So I'm back where I was because I don't do it anymore. I can do it, but I don't do it. And I do it for a reason. You know, and I tell people, because somebody said to me, well, how can you teach? I said, well, I can teach. 
I can do it. I just, to do anything, it's muscle memory. You mm-hmm. have to stay on top of it. I don't do that anymore. You are teaching at Ballard High School, is that right? Yes. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, we have a little bit of music to listen to. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you had mentioned earlier before we started recording that um, there were some some tracks you wanted to listen to. What's the what's the name of this tune that you wanted us to check out? Um, it's called uh, "Loves Not Times." Fool, you know it's it's Shakespeare. Mm. Who's so, on these recordings? It's uh, Carmen Gagia. Um, um, let's see, Frank. Frank Clayton on on drums. Oh yeah. Um Todd Gowers bass. Eric S. Felt and me front line. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to telling us these these stories about the music and yeah, seriously. about the Seattle scene and uh yeah, well, this is well, really wonderful. Well, I appreciate it, you know, and and like I said, I gave you some other people and if you call me, Max, I'll give you somebody else that you that you that you need to get in touch with and do that with him too. Okay. And uh there's a couple other ones. The thing, the purpose of doing this is because I was always told that I had a responsibility. And that Sonny Stid, in the words of Sonny Stids, he was showing me something one day and he told me he asked me what I was going to do with it. And I went into this whole heavy thing and he just kept saying, no, what are you going to do with it? And I just kept going on and on. And then finally, I stopped and said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, when you die, you can't take it with you. You got to keep it. You got to pass it on. You got to keep it going. And I said, oh. You're right. <laughs> so he was at my house, see. My, he'd wow. come and stay with my parents sometime. And uh, I just happened to come home. And he didn't realize that they were talking about me. And he just, he lit up like a candle when he realized it was me. Holy cow. That my parents were talking about. And uh, and he started pointing, he's one of my children, you know. <laughs> and it was just so beautiful. But... When he told me that, I never forgot that because of the look in his eyes as he told me that. Wow. So that's the important thing. So I will end with everybody's going to have your number. But the beauty of this is that to be able to pass it on and watch somebody pass the torch on and to pass the torch on and watch them take it somewhere else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Mm-hmm. With that, we'll cue up this music. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Here's another track featuring Gary. This one's written by trumpeter Eric Esfeld called Love Not Time's Fool. See you next month. <laughs>